This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. So this week, we have a lot of different things to dive into. We're going to talk about the newly released trailer for the Yorgos Lanthimos film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. We're going to catch up on the new season of Game of Thrones, which has us all captivated as usual. And we're going to catch up with uh, frequent VF.com contributor Jordan Hoffman, who saw Steven Soderbergh's new film, Logan Lucky, and also interviewed the director in his office for about an hour and has a lot to share from that conversation. But before we dive into those, there is a trailer that broke as we were about to record this for The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is the new film from Yorgos Lanthimos, a Greek director with a couple of kind of foreign indie hits to his name. Richard, you saw this movie at Cannes. I think you've talked about it a little bit, but with this trailer out, it kind of gives me at least a chance to see what this movie's all about. And as I told you when I finished watching it, I cannot figure out what this movie is about, and I might need you to talk me through it. Well, it's one of those things where I don't, I don't really want to give away the, uh, give away the trick. There's a, a very dark premise at the center of the movie, but I think it's best if it's kind of surprise, you know, it's a surprise. I'll just say it's about like a family dealing with a very sinister situation as, as the trailer. It's like we need to talk about Kevin type of a. Situation? Uh, not quite. Okay. Right. I mean, there are shades of that for sure okay. with this kid, um, Barry Key. How do you say his name? Barry Keogh? Key- Kogan? I don't know. Well, this is the first uh, name we need to learn to pronounce for award season. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Is Sir Sharonin yeah. coming back? Because I do remember yeah. how to spell her name. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess it's, it's Keegan, Keegan, probably. Anyway, um, you might, people might recognize him from Dunkirk. And this is not his, f- Killian the Sacred Deer and Dunkirk. Uh, he's been in stuff prior to this, but these are the first kind of two really big things. One thing that he was in that was really small that's not even come out in the U.S. at all, I think they might have a distributor, is a movie called Mammoth with Rachel Griffiths that was at Sundance two years ago that he's really remarkable in. I think that might have been his debut. Anyway, he's an actor to watch and he, in, in Sacred Deer, as the trailer suggests, is, is a kind of really menacing, uh, force, but also, but it kind of offset by this kind of cherubic face. So he's, he's an interesting presence in the movie. And you got Nicole Kidman, you got Colin Farrell yeah. coming, returning with Yorgos from The Lobster, which yeah. is, that's in- encouraging. And yeah. Alicia Silverstone. That's right. Is this yeah. the big Alicia Silverstone comeback that I've been, Waiting for. Um, I was really excited for that. P- people who you know were listening before can. I, I mentioned it quite a few times. Um, <laughs> she's only in a couple scenes. That's she's, right. She's okay, very we good this. in them. She's very good. Okay. In them. Um, and Colin Farrell, you know, is doing a really similar thing to the stilted kind of very monotone performance that he gave in The Lobster, which really yeah. everyone in that movie was giving. Yeah. Um, and Nicole Kidman sort of does that, but she also, as she always does, kind of adds something extra. She's really good. This is, you know, this is the next thing in her remarkable year. This is, she had four things at Cannes. We've seen some of the stuff she's done this year, Big Little Lies. So this is, you know, what's, what she's up to now. And it's just another good performance. So 
we're seeing. I found the movie kind of almost, I'm um, not almost, definitely too kind of re- unrelentingly bleak for me yeah. at Cannes at the time. Right. The world has gotten markedly better, obviously. The world is in such America. a better place. Now maybe we'll enjoy <laughs> escaping to this world. great. Actually, so. this this world might seem totally great now in comparison to the At real this world. At point, honestly. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. Okay. But I don't know. How, what, does it look to you guys like it has an Oscar-y potential? I mean, The Lobster was nominated, right? So... Yeah, the lobster was kind of a uh, surprise feel good indie story because, you know, it opened at Cannes like a year and a half before the Oscars where it was nominated and it did stuck with people. Uh, so it seems to me like if this movie has a similar power as kind of like a bleak alternative to whatever the Oscar bait is, it, it seems totally possible, especially with this great Nicole Kidman narrative that I think everyone's really rooting for her and excited about what she's doing. So why not kind of use that power? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, it'll be curious to see, um, you know, obviously when with the Academy changes towards um, more diversity, like hopefully we'll see more on that front. But it's also a younger group of people. And so maybe something that's really dark and edgy like this and not, you know, traditional awards prestige, though it has, you know, prestigious actors in it or whatever. Maybe maybe it'll kind of catch fancy because, it you know, while dark movies do win at the Oscars or get nominated, it's 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 rare that something not to spoil anything this dark right. gets in there well and to be clear the lobster was nominated for screenplays so it's not right. like you know right. which this makes it uh would be like a repeat best picture thing no. or anything like that no and 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 the screenplay oscar i feel like is w- in one of the categories where there people go a little further afield sure they're a little, a little riskier with yeah. their choices by the way Sounds like this won't happen, but imagine if this... Is this a horror? Is it at some level a horror? They're kind of pitching oh, it as a thriller. It's... Yeah, it's some weird place between those two things. Because my favorite, yeah. uh, maybe slightly likely possibility this year is that it'll be the first year that two horror movies are nominated for Best Picture if we have right. Get Out and Mother. Right. But if this one comes in, it could be three. That's we go right, right from That's right. one to three. Um, speaking of the of Get Out getting nominated, do you remember back after the Oscars, we were trying to figure out Moonlight winning versus, you know, La La Land mm-hmm. and, and talking about the balloting system? They're still trying to figure out that. Well, there was this, this uh, kind of independent film writer named Daniel Joyot who wrote a piece that we talked about on this podcast he wrote something else that i don't know we can tweet out or something about why he thinks we've already seen three or four best picture nominees so far this year even though it's not even labor day mm. um and he'd get out he made a compelling case about how like the voting works now so people should go read that we'll, we'll link to it but what are the other ones besides get out i would totally agree on yeah, get, get out. out dunkirk which i think for dunkirk. sure those two okay uh, and then i sort of wavered with him a little bit he 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 talked about uh, the emoji movie, yeah, the emoji, the emoji movie, movie. Uh, <laughs> Dark Tower, uh-huh. Arthur. So it was five. No, um, uh, he he also brought up Big Sick and Detroit, and uh-huh. Big Sick. He you know he he made compelling case for that, but I think that movie was not quite the hit it needed to be in mm-hmm. order to re- to to last in people's minds. All, you mm-hmm. know when is voting December uh, for nominations, and then Detroit. I just that didn't quite catch either the way that well they won't give up on detroit we no, know that no. there will be a there will yeah. be a campaign so yeah. you never know but it, it just depends on how many other i guess good movies come out yeah yeah and he was explaining in the piece about how they there's a new rule where a, a movie has to get a certain amount of five percent of, of number one votes on the top on the on the nominations top 10 list from each voter mm. so that kind of has shut out smaller films in a way but now that there's a more diverse group maybe we'll so anyway it's a good read I'll, we'll, we'll link to it okay but, great yeah but yeah i don't know killing of sacred deer i don't know if that's best picture but but people should keep an eye on it and definitely plan on doing something happy afterward <laughs> or just having a lot of 
lots of drink or something. And not reading the news. Right. Should we bring drinks? Because that's my new favorite thing now. You know, I go I to mean, the yeah. Metrograph or whatever. I have I bring a drink. Sure. Yeah. I pick. I yeah. pick. They bring <laughs> right. it to you. I pick. Yes, that's right. Saving theatrical <laughs> movies. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So we wanted to take this time to catch up on maybe the only thing everyone is talking about in America other than the news, uh, which is Game of Thrones, as usual. Uh, it's there As we record this, there are two episodes left in the season. It's a short one as HBO splits up its technically final season into two. And luckily, we have Joanna Robinson, who has been uh, whispering all of the secrets of the show to me for years now, is helping me understand everything, and I think all of us. So, uh, uh, Joanna, I feel like your thoughts on this season have been pretty well established on VF.com. Uh, but in just kind of in general, do you feel like this season is going well? I feel like it was going really well (laughs) for the the first half. And, um, you know, my, my sense among the fandom and even amongst like other critics is that this last week's episode, which was episode five sort of showed, I don't know, the seams a little bit too broadly in terms of them really trying to move us from one dazzling spectacle to the next. So uh, this upcoming week is episode six, which is like another battle episode. Episode four was a battle episode. And so they, I think they struggled a little bit with the transition and you're really seeing, I don't know, the different kind of show it is now, which is like they're, they're in their comfort zone when they're showing you amazing dragons and all that kind of stuff. And then when they have to do the character driven dialogue heavy scenes, they are struggling a little bit. So, yeah. Joanna, do we know how much of the plot now is being driven by George Martin versus Dan and DB? We don't know. I mean, I I could not give you a percentage. You know, we do know thanks to uh, Vanity Fair cover story from a few years ago that they did go to a hotel in Santa Fe, I think, and sit down with George and he outlined major beats, but I don't know how many of those beats there were. And I actually don't know how many of those beats they're hitting. If they're smart, they're hitting all of them. But, um, I, you know, we all know that they've taken sort of their own path to getting there. So I, I don't know. And I, if I had to guess, like, I feel like I can tell sometimes when it's like a Martin story, when it's not, maybe I can't. But like the stuff with um, Hodor that happened last year, which everyone really, really loved. That's a George R. R. Martin thing. Yeah. Um, well, what do you think and- about? Can I just do a big spoiler alert? Please step over to your device and shut it off if you don't want to hear about things that happened in yeah. the last episode. This is to all the Twitter people who complain that we don't give long enough spoiler alerts. Okay, can I just ask you, <laughs> when they go north of the wall, do you think when Jon Snow goes north of the wall, is that is that George Martin? I don't think so. See, that's my uh, gut, too. That's what my gut is, too. 
yeah, I think this is just them being like, oh, they love it when we do ice zombie battles. We'll do one and we'll give them oh, so many characters they love going. So, um, so you're yeah. not into the whole Magnificent Seven, uh, every, getting the band together, trip above the wall. Um, well, what what I've been saying is that I'm not a fan of how they put it together because it seemed pretty clumsy to me. Because the Hound they, and Barrett Dundary and those guys just kind of happened to be there, and and also the worked. plan is crazy. Right? <laughs> the plan like is so plan. bad. And also, a, like, Gendry yeah. is just like shows up and he's like, no, I don't know how to use a sword. And they're like, great, come on, come on up. Yeah. North like, of the wall. You saw him with that hammer. That hammer's pretty intense. I know, but it was just like, it was, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it was, I was straining credulity. And I, and I really am not watching in a hypercritical way. It's basically my escape from like the, our world that's actually yeah. three times as hellish as Game of Thrones now. But, uh, but even I was like, come on. Like why the whole Snow's Eleven thing was a little bit like yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> so yeah. I don't, I don't know if I I think they put it together in anything resembling like an elegant way, but there's still a chance for them to pull the actual episode off. You know this this upcoming episode of episode six, seventy one minutes long, so it's basically a movie, and the finale is eighty one minutes long. So like basically we have two little movies coming at us for the the final two episodes of the season, and it's going to be predominantly. This ice battle north of the wall. So with like a, with seven characters that we care about. So, or to varying degrees. It'll so, probably be great. I, I thought that it was, I mean, I love the show so much in general, but I thought that what was going to happen was we were going to go and beat the crap out of Cersei and then go north of the wall. Like that's what I was looking for. I thought that right, this right. half season or whatever was going to end with Cersei being like lit on fire, which I was actively looking forward to, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> but it seems like that is all mixed up now, which is probably good that they didn't just do what I expected them to do. They've never done anything I expected them to do. Well, you know, I, I think what they're worried about and and I don't know how Martin plans to deal with this, but I think what they don't want to give us is a final season where it's just all the good guys versus eye zombies. Because right. Yeah. That's true. Really, that, that makes seems sense. so boring to be like, yeah. here's all of the characters you like versus CGI elemental force of evil. And so I think they are trying to make it credible that Cersei is still in the game. And I, uh, you know, they're kind of stalling in order to get there. Well, and I think they're doing a uh, they're doing a good job of keeping Daenerys as an ambiguous figure too, because I you know I think throughout her rise, there's always been this kind of little hints of like, oh, but she's kind of mad for power, and I like that they're keeping that in there too. Even though I think she is kind of being positioned as the hero alongside Jon Snow, I think they're going to keep playing with that until the very end. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, like, my dream is that they somehow figure out. I actually think what would be amazing is if. During uh, season eight, their final season, which is six episodes, it would be amazing if the the big battle for the realm of men is over by like episode two or something like that. <laughs> and then the rest is the aftermath. The rest is the now what? Because I think the now what and the human drama of that, ha- like in George R. R. Martin's world, has always been the interesting thing. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think probably the millions and millions and millions of people who watch Game of Thrones don't want that. And they just want like dragons roasting um, ice zombies. But we can't watch that for six episodes, right? So yeah. I don't know. I'm curious. It's funny because it sounds in one hand, we're saying that they're rushing now because they have so much plot to do. On the other hand, it's kind of like there's not actually that much plot. There's like two big wars that have to happen. Right. I mean, presumably the wars will be long and complicated, but there's definitely going to be a battle in like basically every episode from here on out. Um, 
I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah, there's a very Luke and Leia thing going on with Daenerys and Jon Snow that clearly they're not going to allow to be that un uninteresting. You know, they're going to yeah. obviously stir that up a lot more before we're all done. I mean, the long I mean, looks were... you mean they're going to they're not going to figure out that they're related and just leave it alone. Well, whether they figure out they're related, they're not going to just be like, great, let's go arm in arm. Like, it's got to get more complicated than that for George R. R. Martin. Right. I would think. so. Yeah, for George. And I think I'm just I'm that's actually the thing I'm most looking forward to, even though, you know, Mike Hogan and I've had fights before over how interesting of a character Jon Snow is or isn't, but like the Daenerys Jon Snow incest slash love story is so fascinating to me because there are so many people out there who are quote unquote shipping it, who either, even if they have realized that there's incest there, or if they don't like get obsessive and read all of our articles and stuff like that and are just watching at home, haven't realized that. But that means that like, I, I don't know, the cover of the magazines when season eight comes out, it's going to be Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark in like a romantic clinch. And it's like, <laughs> this is an aunt and her nephew. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. is that what you're shipping? Like that's, that's so George to me. Like, you know, here's, here's two attractive people that are heroes that you like and they fall in love. And then there's like, uh, yeah, Luke and Leia at least never like you weren't really rooting for them because you were always rooting for Han and Leia. But this way, like people are really rooting for it. And then they're going to have to look in the mirror and be like, am I cool? With an aunt and a nephew yeah. being in love. So Well, it would be interesting if it ended up being the battle of the two incestuous couples, you know, at the very end. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The Lannisters and the Star <laughs> Starkarians. It's just an uh, incest mess. <laughs> the incest melee. Um, I would <laughs> and it, I, I think, you know, Katie's right. I think the most interesting thing they could do is if it becomes then somehow a fight between John and Daenerys. And that yeah. would be, I think, really hard for us to figure out. But I don't know how that's going to, I mean, we'll see. They'll, they'll surprise me somehow. But like, there's no, John doesn't want the throne. So I don't know what they would be fighting over. Sansa wants the here. throne. Yeah. Sansa wants it all. So, well, we're still talking about it. <laughs> but I did want to ask you guys about something that, something interesting that I heard Andy Greenwald say on his podcast the other day is that he feels, you know, he and Chris Ryan spent a lot of time criticizing Game of Thrones and they have become, they have gone from being like, you know, of the camp that's like, this is all awesome. Everything's great to like being actually quite critical this season. And Andy said something where he was like, I feel like Thrones is post criticism. And I feel that too. Like, I, it, honestly, I don't think it even matters. The show could be terrible for, like, for the next two weeks and for you know, all six of the episodes and it's still just going to be the most popular thing in the world. Like it's, it's a, it's a destination and event now and less of like a work of art to be criticized. And I was wondering what you guys think of that. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no reason to get overly critical about it when you're watching it at this point. It's yeah. just a big event. It's like the Super Bowl. you know, it's just like a fun thing to look forward to on Sunday and it's good enough. I mean, it's awesome. Like it looks cool and it's, and even the parts that are bad are kind of funny at this point. So what, you know, I mean, that's how I feel. Yeah. I, I, my feeling is like, it's a freaking fantasy show about dragons. Like yeah. the, the, the seriousness that people take it, including possibly some of the people in the creative team 
is uncalled for. It's just like, let's just sit back and enjoy this yeah. wonderful, crazy thing. And it's had moments when I, I've, in past seasons, when I think it's really been really thoughtful and kind of quiet and beautiful, you know, and that, that could happen again. You know, like we yeah. had, there are more episodes. There's time. Um, I do, I find myself missing a little bit of the sort of slower pace, but like, I'm also like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped every, every Sunday night, you yeah. know, so, uh, I, yeah. I shouldn't complain or can't complain. And I mean, for Katie and me who, I don't know, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's almost hard. I, I would think for us, Katie, to even think of it as a show, given like the way in which we it's work. It's a lifestyle. It. <laughs> 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 it's our That's entire true. everything on, on a Sunday, but, the yeah i mean and that's really interesting to me and i guess the only thing i would say is that the last the the final episode if that's terrible in some way then it might like get i don't know the lost reputation where they're like oh sure. it's great <sighs> for you know eight seasons and they really fumbled it on the goal line or whatever yeah, yeah but and was it's it hard to it's hard to imagine that there won't be something that people will think they fumbled it on the goal line like it's just right. it, there's it's so much to so many people Right, but from like Mash to The Sopranos, that's always been a thing of like the yeah. crappy last episode. I think it's impossible to satisfyingly end a phenomenon like this. Probably, maybe. Yeah. I mean, Breaking Bad is probably the only show that ever like from start to finish was like successful, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, but I think that th- this show is not like Lost, where the whole basic point of it was like let's resolve this thing and then they're like actually we're not going to resolve it and lost would have been had been floundering for a while at that point you know i think um i my worry for for a game of thrones finale is not like necessarily on disappointing resolutions of things it's more what if it's this like long dragged out like end of lord of the rings kind of thing where it's Mm. like they say goodbye 17 times and you know because like they they tend to do like you know, penultimate episode is the big thing, and then mm-hmm. there's a little denouement, right? And so, if they're doing a denouement for an entire series, I'm just—I don't know. That last episode—that's what Joanna's be... asking for. Yeah. She wants four yeah, denouements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I was—a um, reader sent me in this long uh, quote from George R. R. Martin, where he was talking about Tolkien, and actually, he Martin has an objection with the end of the way. The, the way Lord of the Rings ended, but it's sort of like even the opposite of what Richard just said, where he was like, they didn't spend enough time in the post-war. That's why I think there could mm-hmm. be a lengthy post-war thing because Mar- George R. R. Martin talking about Tolkien, he's like, okay, so Aragorn, you know, Viggo Mortensen becomes a king and he rules for a hundred years and he's a good guy. But like, how does that really go? What's Aragorn's tax policy? Does he kill all the orcs that are still remaining? You know, like, does he kill the baby <laughs> orcs? Like, what does he do? How does he reign? Like, and that's what Martin's interested in. And that's why he's taking Martin a million years to finish his books because that's how he thinks. Uh, whereas, you know, it's possible that Weiss and Benioff and HBO will be like, dragons beat ice zombies, Jon Snow king forever, the end. Like, that might happen. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I don't think that that's how Martin's going to end his story. So I'll be interested to see how they reconcile those two possibilities. Who, who do we think is going to win an Emmy off of this season? Uh, if you have to pick one person, one actor. One actor. Yeah. Uh, Lena Headey. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, she's 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 got a lot to do, I guess. Um it's and if I If they f- remember, they might give it to to Sophie Turner. Um on oh. hand, that'd be nice. It's deserved, but they might do that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I don't know. I think that like Daenerys is a little bit one note. No, I mean, it's it's, it's good she plays the note well. Yeah. But but I but maybe I don't know. Um 
if something dynamic shifts with her character in the next couple episodes, maybe that because she is a little bit more to the center than Cersei is. But while well, Cersei is, you know, I don't know. That's would, who I would go with. It would crack me up if Matt Shackman, who uh, directed the um, the really big Jamie Daenerys battle episode, uh, if he won for best director, since he's like a he's a has directed a lot of it's always sunny in philadelphia so it's like huh. he came behind to become like their their emmy winning director this season that that would kind of crack would, me up and like good. it's still gonna it's gotta win all the costumes and the visuals and it it'll probably win best drama to be honest with you but uh acting wise i don't know it's, i it's think maybe nicola coster waldo <gasps> is I mean, he's having a really good season yeah. but i don't know what's gonna I happen i love nikolai so much but I, I think they're just not leaving a lot of opportunity for a lot of good acting this season because yeah. they're just rushing it from one plot point to the next, it feels like. So it's more like what's happening, not how people are reacting. Like this last week's episode, spoiler alert, <laughs> I guess, for this last week's episode, <laughs> there's the scene between Nikolai and Peter Dinklage in the crypts of Winterfell or of, of King's Landing, which to me was some of the best acting of the whole season. Um, and it was like, two minutes maybe (laughs) one and a half like it was really short but they were both like acting their like buns off so uh, you know (laughs) it's it just doesn't feel like they're they're giving them that much you know to to work with that should be a a category at the emmys acting your buns (laughs) off acted his buns (laughs) off (laughs) and last question about this what about Twin Peaks? Do we think is anyone watching Twin Peaks? Do we think that Twin Peaks yes. will will have Emmy like traction the way that like will it be anywhere near the universe of Game of Thrones? No, it'll have. A few I think it things. might be too alienating for people, but like it, it'll get something. I mean, it's been kind of a phenomenon, so yeah, I feel like it won't go. Completely I mean, I, they should give it. They should give it to Lynch, man. Forget Matt Shackman. I, I like forget that kid. Like give it, yeah. give it to Lynch for directing all of it and and give them a writing yeah. Emmy. I yeah. think. Um, and then you, you know, and we've talked want, about, uh, Dale, Dale uh, Cooper, Kyle, Kyle. yeah, yeah. <laughs> justice for Kyle. So, you know, and I could see that happening because come on, actor. Like, <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Emmy. So before we go to my conversation with Jordan Hoffman, uh, Richard, you also saw Logan Lucky, and I know you talked about it on the show a few weeks ago, but just as a reminder to people, it's out in theaters this weekend. Uh, it's a pretty good Soderbergh romp, right? Oh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think I have some embarrassing pull quote in there that's like the perfect late summer cocktail or something. <laughs> yeah. That's very VF of you as, yeah. a, as a place I, with our own cocktail hour newsletter. I try. Uh, so, yeah, so Jordan uh, talked to Steven Soderbergh in his office and uh, and talks about the movie as well. So we'll go ahead and jump to that conversation. So now we're joined by Jordan Hoffman, who is a frequent contributor to VanityFair.com, as well as a uh, general bon vivant in Man About Town. And Jordan, you're going to be our expert witness this week for Logan Lucky. Great, because I really love this movie, and I'm very fond of Steven Soderbergh. He's a guy who, even when his movies aren't great, they're always worth watching. And I hear Logan Lucky is, maybe if you were ranking uh, Soderbergh's all of his movies, it would be on the, in the top half? Yes, it would be in the top half. I mean, he certainly has some some that are in the bottom half, like the good German or uh, <laughs> the underneath, but but which are still interesting. But Logan Lucky is just really a great deal of fun. It's a movie where it, when it's over, everybody's just all smiles. It's just so entertaining and really clever. 
And uh, it's 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 a nice hybrid of two things because it is a heist picture. And this is a guy who pretty much revitalized the genre with his 2001 uh, remake of Ocean's Eleven. Uh, one of the best heist pictures ever, really. And then, of course, two very good sequels, I think. Um, so it has all of that sort of crafty dynamic of like, you know, the movie's one step ahead of you. And just when you think it's going this way, it's going that way. And there's a lot of really nice uh, craft to it. But it's also a great hanging out picture because it has uh, a really kind of laid back style, has these really cool characters and a setting that you don't always see, which is uh, rural America. It's set uh, on the border between West Virginia and North Carolina. And the big heist is at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And uh, you just get to hang out with these guys and listen to them. yap, guys and gals, really great uh uh, female uh, participant in the form of Riley Keogh, who is Channing Tatum's sister, not his love interest. Is which that is how fun. you say her name? No, probably not. I think it's Riley <laughs> Kyo or Ke- Ke- Riley Ke- Ke- Kyo. Yeah, and she's the star of the Girlfriend Experience, which Soderbergh, I guess, executive yes. produces. Yes, and is also, and I always forget this. Yes, he produced he produces the Girlfriend Experience with Lodge Kerrigan and um, Amy Simons, who are running the show, and Riley Kyo. Is uh, was also wonderful in American Honey, and uh, she's done some other really great stuff. And I always forget she's Elvis Presley's granddaughter. She is. Can I and, just go uh, back and uh, and say yeah. something as a now a resident of North Carolina? West Virginia and North Carolina don't share a border. Is Steven Soderbergh remaking American Geography? <laughs> that is very interesting. You know, <laughs> the the main characters live in what I think is called Boone County, West Virginia. Okay, and they live there, but he commutes to work in Charlotte. I, I think maybe that's, and it is like a long schlep. Like yeah, he's got to go a good a hour and a half. Well, I so I drove recently from North Carolina to Michigan, and so we went through West Virginia for a long while. And I saw billboards for Logan Lucky in North Carolina and also in Michigan. And I never see billboards for movies anywhere outside of New York or LA. And I was fascinated by this that this was yeah. the choice to market this movie in this way. But apparently, like Channing Tatum's been doing a cross country trip. Like they're really trying to market it to the people who live where the movie is set. What Steven Soderbergh said to me, Katie, when I spent over an hour in his office, yes. one on one, uh, he said, uh, he, he almost said, as he was joking, but he said, I wish we didn't have to open this movie in New York and L.A. I mean, he he made it for the quote-unquote flyover red states, if I may use a pejorative term, and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a love letter to that part of the world, uh, you know, Soderbergh is uh, was born not to privilege in uh, and great wealth in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You know, he is from the South. So, um, you know, he doesn't often make movies set in that part of the world and uh, movies that are that do often include characters from that part of the world are sometimes, pers- you know, uh, display uh, portrayed as, as as Hicks or, you know, as uh, as uneducated and this movie is is really fun. It's 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 got great characters that you love. It casts a really warm eye on them, even though there are two characters in the movie that are kind of dummies. You know, there there's uh, Daniel Craig plays a character by the name of Joe Bang, who is an explosives expert in prison, and he's got two knucklehead brothers played by Gleason and Quaid, right? Jack Quaid and. So and so Gleason. Is he a Gleason as in uh, uh, Donal and uh, um, uh, Brendan Gleason? To the internet, I say. Uh, <laughs> he, yeah, uh, indeed, he is uh, of he's of the Gleasons. Yes, and and Quaid, I would imagine, is a Quaid he as is well. A Quaid, yes. Who and they played the two 
boneheads. They're, but they're the, the you know, uh, click and clack. And they're the comic. They're, well, they're all comic relief in this movie, but they're extra comic relief. Uh, but it's still done in a very warm and, and loving way. And it's uh, a great deal of fun. And I can't uh, I can't emphasize enough when the movie is over. Uh, it's just like it all ties up in a in a really nice bow, and it's um, without giving anything away. There's something that happens in this film, and I brought it up in my conversation with him. When when you see a movie with a wide cast of characters, or the, like a lot of adventures along the way, because with any good heist movie, there's a heist within the heist, and then there's setbacks, and there's you know redirections and whatnot, and a lot of people show up along the way, and then at the end of the movie. Everybody gets an opportunity, and it's crafted nicely in the story, to take something of a curtain call. And uh, there's this thing that happens when you're watching a movie that's fun and upbeat. And at the end, when you see everybody from the movie, and you're in the audience going, hey, it's that guy. And hey, she's there too. And hey, look at that. It's just a very gratifying experience. And and I wish there was a term for it in screenwriting. I don't think that there is. But uh, it's something that happens in this film, and it really is quite quite enjoyable. It's- I saw what Soderbergh said in your interview, and we should talk about your conversation with him because it's such a great interview that he was like, Some- Fellini said you should get everyone together at the end of the movie. And-, and Soderbergh really has nailed doing that in all of his movies that involve ensembles. Like you think about the Ocean's Eleven, all of them standing in front of the fountain of the Bellagio. Like he kind of, as much as a lot of his career has been about movies that don't necessarily play to the audience, when he chooses to play to the audience, he really knows what he's doing. Yes, exactly. And he does it in ways that you don't necessarily see coming. And I think that's sort of his his thing right now is he does not want to make, you know, difficult uh, brooding films or, or films that are like overly heady or complex. He wants to make audience pleasing work. I mean, think of the Nick. I mean, the Nick is just a great yarn, but it's always a little bit it leans into genres of storytelling that can often be sensationalized, but there's always very smart grace notes happening within each scene. And a lot of that comes in the writing and just from the style of shooting and also just from the, the way the performances are done. He's in a nice uh, stride right now. And uh, it's funny because he hasn't been doing uh, feature film work for a while. His last film in theaters was side effects, which I liked, but it was not everybody's favorite. And then uh, behind the candelabra was uh, for HBO only. And then he's been uh, doing the Nick, but you know, uh, but it would appear that he's, you know, back making feature films again. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah. He's been so casual about this comeback too. Like he said he was retiring and everyone was kind of like, what? And it was horrifying. And then he kept making television and he had never really retired. And now he's just back making feature films and kind of shrugging and saying, well, what are you going to tell me not to do it? And everyone's like, no, <laughs> please never leave us again. Well, it was the first question I asked him, and he kind of, he did, he shrugged, and he's like, what do you want from me? I say a lot of things, <laughs> you know, don't, don't listen to me all the time. But he also said, you know, the, the, the business is changing. Uh, you know, the business, the business is very different right now than it was in 2013, and uh, part of that has to do with streaming. Uh, this movie, the way, the economics of this film is very interesting. I'm not going to get into it too much, because it's, uh, this is not an economics podcast, but he was able to you know, sort of pre-sell it to Amazon streaming, but still have a theatrical window. And he created a new company, which is called Fingerprint Releasing, which is just his company working directly as a distributor with the theater chains themselves, which is why they've been doing a lot of work in the so-called, in the not New York, LA area. They had the premiere in Knoxville, Tennessee, because that's where AMC Theaters has their headquarters, Mm -hmm. you know? Which you'd think more people would do that then, but but you know this is the first, 
And, uh, you know, he hopes, he's, you know, that this company, which he created, and he's a fellow that does create a lot of companies. Remember that he does have a, uh, a company that uh, distributes uh, a rather obscure Bolivian fruit brandy, which is not like a joke side project. That's like a real business. That and, I wanna, and that's a fascinating part of your interview, too, where you uh, he says, imagine me as a Willie Loman taking three trips a month to sell this brandy. Like, how is that really? How is he doing that? You never know. He could have been pulling my leg, but he seemed sincere. But just about this fingerprint. So if and then and also he plans to do a lot more uh, television producing, bringing like he did with Girlfriend Experience. And, you know, he hopes to sort of he, he was hesitant to use the word mentor. He kind of blanched at that word. But, you know, bring in writer directors with a lot of talent that are not as established and, and give them free reign, which is awesome. Now, in terms of the fruit brandy, Singani 63, the story, for people who don't know, is uh, he was working on Shay, a movie that I think he has misgivings about now a little bit because uh, there were a bunch of co- – happened to be on his shelf. There was a whole stack of DVDs of Shay, and I went, oh, look, a whole bunch of copies of Shay. And he's like, oh, God, please take them all. He, so, <laughs> and and uh, it was Shay that, that sort of was a very big movie, and you know, two parts and, you know, a big biographical thing, and it was earmarked for Oscar glory. Didn't quite work out. And then since then, he's been doing these smaller projects. So, but anyhow, it was when he was shooting Shea in Bolivia that he discovered this local fruit brandy and he loved it and started drinking it. And there was no easy way to get it in America. So he became the importer, which, and you know, this cool label, the website's really funny. There's good graphics. I mean, the guy knows design very well. So you would think that it's, it's just sort of like a thing. He hangs his name on it and somebody else runs the business. Well, he does have other people working on the business. But to hear him tell it, it occupies a, a percentage of his day every day. You know, he's building the brand. It's in 16 markets and the trajectories are good and, you know, they're, the sales are good. Everything's on the up, but it involves a lot of travel. He has to go to every market regularly. He has to go into I mean, this thing doesn't sell in like your corner Duffy's saloon. It sells in like nice hotels and, you know, it sells in like fancy places. You know, it's a fancy drink. And, uh, you know, he's out there hustling it, which is fascinating. You know, I personally shaking hands with the buyers and the owners of the establishments. That's that's he says that. He said that, uh, you know, I always thought this business, meaning entertainment, filmmaking, was a relationship business but compared to spirits it's nothing that's a real relationship business so all i keep thinking just reading the reviews for logan like in your interview with him is that like i just feel so glad that we still have steven soderbergh around that he didn't say like to hell with all of you when he left uh filmmaking the first time and because he's he's just got such a talent that is not and a talent and an attitude about all this is not like anyone else where he can go and make magic mike and then you know shepherd magic mike too and make this and i'm just so lucky i feel so lucky that we still have him yeah, I mean, and the origin story of this film was he was working as a cinematographer on Magic Mike XXL when the script came to him, which is another controversial story. Who actually wrote the script? And just like he just really liked it and was keeping tabs on it. And when it looked like the Nick season three was not working, he just had a no when to hold him, when no when to fold him attitude. And just like, all right, Nick season three is off. Logan Lucky's on and just pivoted right away. And and made it happen, which was uh, pretty nifty and, you know, just seemed very, very upfront about it. You know, the, what was interesting with my talk with him was and I have interviewed him before, but never, never uh, in never in his turf, never on his turf. There is a lot of like 
joking around and he is kind of smiling and winking. And he says a lot of things in the interview, like uh, he kind of threw down the gauntlet at his friend uh, Christopher Nolan a lot about Nolan's love of film and 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 70 millimeter and Soderbergh is like the, the capture medium to him means nothing. He's like, he doesn't care if it's, if it's on film well, or Soderberg video. Soderbergh was one of the most high profile early adopters of digital. Yeah. But he was just like, it's not about the, his, his whole philosophy is not about the capture medium. It's about the edit. It's about the story. It's about the angle. And I even said to him, and this is not in the interview, but I said, come on, you're a smart guy. Don't you love going to MoMA and seeing an old print of an old movie from the thirties and hearing go through the projector, and he's like, "No, it's blurry, it's chewed up, it's crap." You know, I don't, I don't like that at all. You know, it's it's not interesting to me at all. Give me something, give me something good. So I don't know. That's his attitude toward that. Well, I'm really glad that you talked to Steven Soderbergh for us. I think you guys are two uh, excellent talkers, and you can tell in the interview, which is uh, now up on VanityFair.com. And uh, so I guess we should tell everyone to go see Logan Lucky this weekend. It's not like there's anything else good out in theaters right now. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything else good, and I can tell you that even though, uh, you know, it is a quote-unquote independent release, uh, it's just a good yarn. It's just with funny stuff, and Adam Driver's hilarious, and Riley Keogh, and uh, even, uh, what's her name, um, Holmes. Katie Holmes is in it. She's good in it, too. You don't see her too much these days. And uh, Daniel Craig with a with a southern accent. He does this thing where he eats a lot of uh, uh, hard-boiled eggs and close-up. It's kind of gross. Sure. Uh, it's 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 fun stuff. And, um, you know, when I went and saw it, uh, I was at, a, you know, kind of a packed press screening with a lot of people who didn't know what the heck we were getting into. And there was this, you know, New York City film critics are about the hardest people in the world to please. Everybody was in the little um, little room outside the old uh, Dolby 88 uh, screening room in, in Midtown. And everybody was kind of glowing like, wow, that was a blast. That was really a lot of fun. So a big hearty thumbs of approval from me well thank you so much for joining us to talk about it jordan you got it and we'll see you next time that does it for this week's little gold pen thanks as always for listening and you can find us rate us and review us on apple Podcasts. we really appreciate that it helps us find new listeners you can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And we're all on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for best way to spend the end of the summer goes to both Katie Rich and Mike Hogan. Like, let's just sit back and enjoy this yeah. wonderful, crazy thing. And not reading the news. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.